if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor it, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 141, Isaiah's Sabbath. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The book We Too describes the marriage and relationship of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, how the latter, as husband to his wife and simultaneously subject to his queen, had to balance these two aspects inherent in the identity of the woman to whom he was married. Thus the book tells us, quote, on one occasion, Victoria reportedly stalked out of her husband's room in rage, returned penitent sometime later, to find the door locked, and knocked at the door. Who is there? asked the prince. The Queen of England. No response. Another knock. Who is there? Your wife, Albert. The door was unlocked. End quote. Albert would not open the door for his queen, but he would for his wife. This brings us to the concept of the Shabbat, or Sabbath, in Jewish law. For it is these very two analogical appellations that the Talmud gives us in describing this sacred day. Thus we are informed that Rabbi Hanina would wrap his cloak around himself and say, Bo v'neitzei likrat Shabbat HaMalka. Come, let us go out to meet the Sabbath queen. In contrast, we are further informed that Rabbi Yanai would say, Boi kala, boi kala. Come, bride. Come, bride. Here then, as my son pointed out to me, we have two very different analogies, two very different descriptions of the Sabbath, as a queen and as a bride. Interestingly, the very ways in which verbs are utilized are distinct in these two metaphors. Rabbi Hanina goes out to greet the Sabbath queen. Rabbi Yanai says, come to the Sabbath bride. In Talmudic times, residents of a town would go out to greet the sovereign as he or she approached. Hence, Rabbi Hanina's language. In contrast, Rabbi Yanai uses language that captures Jewish weddings today, when the groom stands under the chuppah, looking upon his bride as she approaches. So, sovereign and spouse, queen and wife. Why these two metaphors for the Sabbath? It is our earlier anecdote about Victoria and Albert, I believe, that allows us to understand that just as these two words can reflect two different ways of seeing the same person, so can they capture two different ways of seeing the experience of the Shabbat, two facets of the sacred day that enhance each other, both emphasized in our passages in Isaiah. Let us consider, again, these two Talmudic descriptions of the Shabbat, queen and wife, ruler and spouse. A sovereign issues edicts, creates obligations. We relate to a ruler in terms of our duties, whereas a bride, of course, embodies the opposite emotion, not law, but love. We relate to our spouse, not first and foremost with a sense of obligation, but devotion. So which for Jews is Shabbat? Is it a source of duty or of delight? The answer, of course, is both. On the one hand, for traditional Judaism, Sabbath brings with it an enormous amount of rules, restrictions, prohibitions. Thus, in chapter 55, Isaiah speaks of the religious obligations of the Sabbath, along with obligations to our fellow man. Verse 2. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from desecrating it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. The phrase in Hebrew is kol shomer shabbat mechalelo, one who preserves the Sabbath and does not violate it. This is a reference to the many forbidden forms of creative activity, 
which cannot be performed on the Sabbath. To speak of the Sabbath as a sovereign is perhaps to refer to the many edicts that apply on this day. But then, soon after this, Isaiah describes the Sabbath in a slightly different way. This is a famous passage, for it is the Haftarah, the prophetic portion of Yom Kippur morning. Its most well-known verses follow from Isaiah's description of repentance that we have previously discussed, in which the prophet derides those who externally act as if they have atoned, but do not truly change. Chapter 58, verse 5. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? These are well-known words, and justly so. But then Isaiah turns again to the observance of the Sabbath. And his focus here is not only on forbidden actions, but on the Sabbath as a state of being. Chapter 58, verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor it, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. For the rabbis, these verses include the obligations to actively honor the Sabbath, what is called kavod Shabbat, and also to enjoy the Sabbath, oneg Shabbat. But the pleasures on which we focus, say the sages, are enhancements of the sacred day, of our communion with God, with our family, and with our community. Isaiah's reference to us, not speaking thine own words, is meant to embody the fact that we are transformed on the Sabbath so that the subjects of which we speak are different, that our very state of being is different. In other words, Isaiah describes not only what is prohibited, but what the Shabbat positively is meant to be. It is a state of bliss and love. And this, I think, is what the rabbis mean when they speak of the Sabbath as the Jewish people's bride. And so again, sovereign and beloved, rules and spiritual state. These are the two sides of the Jewish Sabbath, and each enhances the other. The writer Judith Shulevitz, who wrote a book about the Sabbath, once interestingly reflected to her American audience that what she had come to understand is that if one wished to experience the spiritual growth that is the Sabbath, one had to obey rules as well, because otherwise the mundane concerns of the world would inevitably intrude. In her words, quote, we could have something to which we probably say yes, namely more time for self and family and neighborhood. And all we'd have to do is let ourselves be governed by a few no's, a few rules about not working at a prearranged time. Conversely, if we don't accept a no or two, then the kind of time that used to be protected by the Sabbath time, during which everyone leaves the office or factory and turns to one another for entertainment and sustenance, is in danger of disappearing, end quote. Thus, Sabbath as sovereign and Sabbath as bride go hand in hand. And perhaps two of the most interesting articulations about how rules reinforce the Sabbath state of mind come from non-Jews. The first is from a book we've mentioned before, the Catholic theologian Maria Johnson's Strangers and Neighbors, about her friendship with Orthodox Jews in Scranton. Johnson, using her friend's pronunciation for the Sabbath, Shabbos, reflects that, quote, my friends always told me that they love Shabbos, but quite frankly, I never believed them. Until recently, I assumed that Shabbos observance was a big nuisance, end quote. 
But, Johnson adds, quote, my attitude changed suddenly and completely when I stopped by Ahuva's for some reason one Shabbos afternoon. An appetizing smell was coming from the kitchen. Yaakov and Simcha were doing puzzles on the floor. Yosef was bent over a Hebrew book at the table. David was trying to stand on his head. Something about the scene struck me as peculiar, but it took me a minute to figure out what it was. Ahuva has eight children, runs a catering business from home, heads fundraising for the day school, works in the mikveh every evening from her children's bedtime until her own, and sews most of the clothes for her own family and lots of other people besides. She is perpetually on the move, manhandling toddlers and shopping bags in and out of the car with her sleeves rolled up, flour on her nose, needles stuck through her shirt, and the cell phone clipped to her belt ringing every two minutes. In years, I don't think I had ever seen her sit down for three minutes at a time, even during meals. But here she was, lying on the sofa, with the little ones lolling against her, listening to Dina read a sci-fi novel. She couldn't cook, she couldn't sew, she couldn't shop. She didn't have to answer the phone. She just had to be. It was, Johnson adds, one of those sudden shifts in perspective, like when you think you have been looking at two black vases on a white background, and suddenly all you can see is a white vase on a black background. I had always thought of Shabbos as a 25-hour prison of petty regulation, enlivened by a bit of religion. Suddenly, I saw and my friends saw it with such love. End quote. And Johnson, like Shulowitz, eloquently expresses her realization that the experience of the Sabbath is bound up with its rules. Or as she further puts it, quote, The job of the Shabbos laws is to prevent Jews from making any changes to the world, from tinkering with what God made for the space of one day. For one day they simply have to live in the world as it is and cede control to God. All the laws, the 39 acts that generations of rabbis have multiplied into hundreds of prohibitions on the most trivial everyday activities, are an adamantine edge to chisel holiness into the weak in a way that cannot be ignored or evaded by distraction and must therefore be welcomed and embraced and celebrated. End quote. This is beautifully stated and it is striking that Johnson notes not only the forms of forbidden activity in the Bible, but also those rabbinic rules that were instituted to further enhance the Sabbath's spiritual bliss. And this brings us, in turn, to another insight from a non-Jew. Professor Joshua Berman, in an interesting article in Mosaic, describes spending a Saturday in Fiji, describing Jewish observance to a community of Seventh-day Adventists. As Professor Berman describes, he journeyed there, driven both by interest and a desire to engage in his hobby of deep-sea diving in that beautiful location. He writes, quote, An especially fascinating moment came when a woman asked if we separated tithes on the Sabbath. Adventists dedicate a tenth of their earnings to the church and evidently bring the money to worship services on the Sabbath itself. I said that we don't touch money at all on the Sabbath, not even to give charity, and no beggar would think to extend his hand on that day. This, Berman continues, really struck home. One of the elders, after conversing with the other in Fijian, announced a decision. Henceforth, tithing in Nakorakula would no longer be done on the Sabbath. You are absolutely right about money, he said to me. When your hand is in your pocket, your mind is in your pocket. End quote. Thus does a Seventh-day Adventist in Fiji put it better than I ever could, capturing what Isaiah meant and asking us to call the Sabbath a delight and to therein find God himself. Thus do two non-Jewish reflections beautifully allow us to understand the two Talmudic descriptions of the Sabbath. In the coronation of Elizabeth II, her husband Philip was required to kneel to his wife, showing all assembled that the woman that he had married 
was his sovereign. We too, the Jewish people, pay homage to the Sabbath queen who was also our spouse, the beloved bride of our people. We gladly acknowledge that the Sabbath is both, for the two sides of the Shabbat together bring about the sense of spiritual peace that sustained the Jews through many troubled times and which sustains us still. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.